Hi, everybody. The conversation I'm going to have today with Zeus has to do with, it's based on a private conversation that happened recently in San Francisco with some friends that was really challenging um, to look at. And that precipitated a conversation a few days later with Danny Sheehan, which I blogged about recently. And this is a subject that I think is absolutely critical for us to understand at this point in time, because we have some real decisions to make. And even though I have these wonderful conversations with the people I interview who have various levels of, and areas of expertise, oftentimes Zeus and I will go into discussion about these things later, and that's where a lot of the really profound stuff comes up. That's why I'm inviting Zeus on to have this conversation, because he's uniquely qualified to speak about some of these areas. And and just to set it up briefly, what happened was I was inquiring about my friend's son, who is a millennial. And he said, well, he's, he's doing pretty well, but uh, gosh, two or three of his friends have committed suicide recently because they say they just couldn't see the hope in life anymore. They couldn't see where things were ever going to turn around and where it was going to be a life that they could actually live into, create and enjoy. So they killed themselves. And, you know, we're all, I was very surprised at this. And that's what led to the conversation with Danny Sheehan talking about the devastation of what's happening to hope among the millennials in particular, but among all of us. I think the millennials are becoming extremely fatigued and it's going yet to be seen what the generation younger than them is going to come up with. But toward that end, I wanted to talk about that conversation with Danny. Zeus was there and present for the conversation as well, and then go into it a little bit further because we're talking about a trend that on one level seems seemed like it was a great thing, and now we're starting to see the consequences of it. Zeus, welcome. You're upstairs again. I'm downstairs again. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> Only way we can do this technologically, upstairs, downstairs. And I, I just want to say in advance, if you hear some little doggies barking, um, hopefully they'll stop quickly. Okay. Yeah. I heard some geese in the background, but I think they passed now. <laughs> yeah, the geese are flying. Um, yeah, Zeus, you remember the conversation with our friends yeah. in San Francisco and uh, you remember what, what Danny was saying about it as well. And that was, I said to Danny, how do we begin creating language around something that absolutely has to be discussed in a time when essentially the material world and the world of spirit are, have been separated out? And there's a huge credibility issue, especially among the more liberal portions of society and also the most well-educated portions of society. And these are the very people we need to rely on to help create change. So let's talk about something that I referred to in a meditation. I did this global meditation happening this weekend called the economy of spirit. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think the first thing to understand is that, and I, and I talked about this in my book, Transforming Economy, as well as my latest book, uh, The Spirit's a Confident Man, and that is the spirit is limitless the one the way it really differs from the uh the material world is if anything it increases the more it's shared the more it's given and it doesn't diminish and it it transcends time it transcends lifetimes um its source is is ever giving and that in itself i think is a very in, in terms of the economy of spirit that in itself is almost a it's a it's a great blessing if you really look at it, but at the same time it's somewhat daunting 
because we're always when we're when we are speaking in terms of spirit, we're always overflowing. We're going beyond ourselves, and uh, we're going to our upper selves, you know, our higher selves. And um, the ways that we have been taught through religion, politics, education, to think about purpose, morality, and principle is in these very materialistic terms. Be good to your neighbor, you know, <laughs> take care of your property. Um, we haven't looked at them in these more transcendent terms. And when we have, usually it's in this very removed framework, like monks and, you know, hermits and these people that are just too good for the world. So they're completely removed. Now we're being invited for those two, the inner and the outer, those two worlds, the higher and the lower, to meet with the guidance of spirit at the center. And this is what Danny Sheehan said, without that, there isn't anything. That's very true. And one of the things that happened as I was talking to him, I said, we have to, we have to start embracing the word spirit again. And this is not to be confused with religion, as you just pointed out a moment ago, but the real essence of who, bringing the essence of what you just talked about, who we are to the table. And this does kind of overflow into the material arena, as you and I have discussed, because um, I mentioned to Danny, I said something about Rupert Sheldrake, and we were both talking about what a lovely man he is and his home and everything. But what we were talking about was the spirit Rupert's trying to put forth into the world in his new book, which is really critical. It's reclaiming a sense of ethics and morality. So let's talk about how do we dovetail and recover ethics and morality in with spirit and not call it religion. Right. Well, the first thing, let's do a little bit of pan back in terms of, I've done a lot of study on the history of spirituality, history of religion. And what I've noticed is two major trends. The first was a notion, um, you could go pre-pre, go way, way back, and you could see, I guess you would say, a much more uh, energetic and primal understanding of spirituality in indigenous cultures. But let's just say within the last 7,000 years, when patriarchy began to take hold, and a kind of hierarchical notion of, uh, of authority and, spirit, uh, and morality took forth. And it had a lot to do with obeying a higher king and an order or a caste of people that were lower and higher. And that was a very, uh, it was a very patriarchal, very dominating understanding of what, you know, what, what constituted good, what constituted order in the world. And around the 17th century, 1600s into the 1700s, we had a rebellion against that in the Enlightenment era. And uh, because, because that had been abused so much, the, the kings were saying, I have the divine right. <laughs> you know, they were basically saying, I am God on earth, you know, and men were saying that over women. It was like, God's here, women, you know, men are here and women or children are here. So there was a lot of abuse of that. And the abuse of that led to um, the assertion of individual rights, the uh, French Revolution, the American Revolution all came out of that. But the problem with that was this. There was, it was a fundamentally reactionary, uh, first of all, it, 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 it accepted the notion of spirituality, morality, in terms of these kind of lord-like uh, dominating people. And so it tried to reject spirituality and morality by rejecting these kinds of people. The imagination, the spiritual imagination, wasn't there to see the spirit as a birthright, with each person having this divine genius and this capacity to give, and that being the notion of spirituality. 
So we still have the legacy of that, and finally that's beginning to tail out. We have it in scientific materialism, we have it in technology as a replacement for religion, and we're finding it kind of empty and hollow, and why wouldn't it be? It's fundamentally reactionary. So now we're being invited into an understanding, an economy of the spirit, understanding of spirituality and morality, which is fundamentally based on giving, it's fundamentally based on sharing, but it's also smart. It's not being, you know, codependent enabler <laughs> of a bunch of abusers. So this is what we're being invited into. It's, a, it's an exciting era. Lots of things are happening around this, even as, as we look around us and there's a lot of despair and politically and economically and educationally, there's a lot of turmoil. So, you know, th that's where we are right now that inner is beginning to meet the outer. And I, I'd really like, to, and you're the one who's really engaged this so much in your interviews. So I'm gonna throw it back to you to, co to comment on that. Well, it's interesting because I think we're really kind of caught between paradigms at the moment. In Rupert Sheldrake's new book, and I think that interview with him is coming out on Gaia soon from my London series. So I would encourage anyone to watch it. It's a lovely story of his life, but it goes into something deeper. And that is, he does speak about what's happened to the human heart and the human condition since we separated from one another, since we no longer joined together in the spirit of communion, uh, song, and whatnot. And it was interesting because you start tracking kind of societal decline, and this isn't, I'm not making this as a pedantic statement, but what happened was he started tracking the uh, growth away from organized religion to scientific materialism slash atheism, and what happened as a result of untethering from those moral structures, be they patriarchal or not, is that there's become this huge decline in our um, moral and ethical bearings where anything goes. All you have to do is even look at programming that was on TV, for example, in the 1950s, you know, leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, and all of these shows in which there was always a moral lesson usually passed on from the father, not the mother per se, but those little moral lessons actually created a backbone of, you can say, normalized behavior for society in which you, you didn't cheat people and lie and hurt people and compete to the point of pain in the other person, which is all now glorified. So again, like I said, it's really this untethering from the old system of patriarchal religions into giving birth to something that contains the new kind of imperative for, for high morality and ethics and care for one another, but with no structure. So how do people, how do we begin doing this as a society, as, a, as, as an economy based on spirit, creating literal economies and institutions and, and moving everything forward in this economy of spirit? Where does one even begin now that we are essentially this is a nation that is dominantly atheist as is all of Europe now so except for I think Poland so how do we begin well I was going to say United States has kind of held out against that Europe is predominantly secular now but the United States still has quite a bit of foundation of faith now people can argue that this might be good or bad especially if it becomes an overweening fundamentalism that doesn't respect other people's, I guess you would say, beliefs or ways of coming at something. 
I think what I'm saying, just, just not to interrupt, but I think what I was saying is percentage-wise, I think the percentage is tipping over towards secularism. Yes. Point. The fastest growing group is still spiritual, but not religious in this yeah. country, as well as in other countries. But that in itself, that term in itself provides a clue to what the trend is and, and where we might be going with a, no, a notion of spirituality that is both untethered, untethered from institutions but more tethered toward community and people. See, that's the that difference. We're having a more democratic, a more horizontal understanding of spirituality emerging, where people are rejecting the hierarchical norms of institutions like religious institutions. And in this in-between space, they're rejecting pretty much every kinds of structure and finding that that uh, makes them too isolated and so that you know, we have these problems with suicide, with youth. Um, now we're going through that stage. And I see this in the clients I have with my AskDrZeus.com. Uh, if people are interested in the approach that I use, you can go to there. But basically what I'm seeing is many of them are in relationships where one of the, well, one of the persons in the relationship is kind of narcissistic and somewhat desperate, sucking the energy off of another person. <laughs> And that person has kind of agreed to that energy exchange using their spiritual energy and to create a kind of balance of order in that relationship. And now they're no longer wanting to do that. They want to be, they say, they say it over and over, I want to be able to feel myself again. I want to be able to be authentic. And when they're saying that, they're saying, I want to feel the authentic spiritual energy of myself, my higher self, my higher mind coming forth again. I don't simply want to have an old notion of service and morality based upon serving these overlords, whether it's an overbearing mate or an overbearing institution. So that's sort of the move that we're having. And it's, it's a kind of a, a tug of war because you've been kind of brought up in that system and, and learned to understand ethics and moralities obeying that system. And now you know it doesn't work anymore. So now we're in, now, now we're in, now we're in a, we can't go back and, and there aren't a lot of tools for going forward. And I would say the first place we're going to start is to say, let's look at spirituality itself, not in terms of simply just new age, you know, methods and theatrics and mindfulness, which is oftentimes very secularized, non-theistic, or in terms of obedience and saying Hail Marys at a church but in the terms of a communal and individual expression of your individual unique divine genius brought out into the world to, to, to do your dharma and to help others and to share and to give to others. And this is just beginning to come out. It is. And one of the things, and um, you were with me doing some research when I was writing my blog, we were looking at the word spirit and spiritual. And it was interesting to note, and you already mentioned this earlier, that in the in days of enlightenment, the word started blossoming and then blossomed again to a real peak. You can see a graph on uh, the use of the word spiritual. It blossomed again in the mid 1800s in the day of Emerson, Thoreau, and these other brilliant spiritualist uh, philosophers. And then it tanked to its nadir in the 1990s when the technology boom really started working its way into our lives completely in the mid-1990s. The word spirituality took a dive, 
And now you would have thought, no, there's a lot of new age stuff going on, but not, it wasn't considered, they weren't, the word spiritual wasn't being bandied about as much. And now it's back on the rise again. So, I mean, I, th- I think that's interesting. It would be interesting to have Cliff High actually um, run some of his algorithms on how that concept or word or feeling is doing in society. And which mm-hmm. brings me to, to answer your question a moment ago um, about where we begin with this. I really think it's a feeling process in that uh, recently someone was, was, uh, was asking me about some bad eggs in the company, um, in this particular company, and how do you begin spotting them? You know, unless you put a team of psychics on and then it's hit and miss anyway most of the time. How do you begin spotting where the energy drain and darkness is happening that's bringing a company down? And my comment was, you pay attention and start feeling where the energy is moving. And this doesn't matter whether it's in a company, whether you're a school teacher in a school and you're at a, you're at a meeting uh, among the faculty, um, the kids in the class. When you start feeling that incredible energy drain happening where possibility starts dimming rather than flourishing, then you're kind of hitting where, the, where, the, where there's a correction needed. And I think by simply on one level saying, I don't choose to be in that environment and participate with that anymore, that's one way to simply kind of walk away from it. But it's everywhere. I mean, it's you go to the store, you know, you have four clerks, one of them is going to take your energy and three are going to smile and you'll have a better day. So it's again, creating this connection in this sense of flourishing possibility that I think our new societies are going to have to be based on globally. Yeah, and we have been taught to distrust our basic uh, deep feeling and intuition. Uh, we've been taught by 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 the way that we you know had relationships modeled in our families. We've been taught by that in the school and these desks that are in little grids, and you're facing a chalkboard, you know, which is 150 years out of date, but we're still doing it anyway. We're taught that in church with all these pews facing forth to a, an elevated dais where someone's telling us what we're supposed to be. I mean, it was so ridiculous because, it, you know, I, I went to seminary for a year and a half and uh, I got a very, very good dose of the church culture. But then I started to realize this was in a Lutheran uh, seminary where they would literally make you mouth a confession as a group that may or may not have had anything to do with your life. They'd say, oh, I've been horrible to my friend and I apologize. And I'm like, I haven't been. I've been working my butt off this past week to make sure that my friends and this community and people that are ignored are being made whole. This thing is, you know, what is this actually doing? What is this cooking and this indoctrination actually doing? What it's doing is it bringing your frequency down. It's saying prostrate yourself. You know, be on the low. Don't don't be don't be proud enough to actually stand up and say the spirit is exalted and good and powerful and transcendent and radiant and going to affect the world and other things, you know, and, and other people in ways that are inspirational. And with my clients, that's oftentimes what I say is trust yourself. That radiant aspect of yourself is in some sense all you have. It's the one thing that transcends your own death. It's the one thing that allows you to uh dramatically transformed sometimes in miraculous ways by allowing insights to come into into you and allows a wonderful person to come into your life or an opportunity 
or in the case of spiritual and moral courage, for you to stand up for yourself. And that's a huge thing right now. I know so many empaths, so many people who feel bad about standing up for themselves and reclaiming their dharma and their spirituality. I, I, almost everyone of my clients is in that position, and I myself am. So I'm, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on this, but I've engaged it, and I'm teaching a class on emot- emotions and motivation, and I see it happening in there as well where people are, are learning not to allow negative emotions to dominate their lives, and if anything, to use them as keys to learn into themselves and what you call deeper feeling or sparks of desire and to have confidence, spiritual confidence in those things as being the true thing, the, the purpose that's going to guide you forward and allow you to authentically interact and change the world in a good, play, in a good way. I think that's true. I mean, in a sense, you would have to say there's no objective truth. It's the thing that you need to draw you forward in life. That is your truth. And that's the thing that we tend to give our sovereignty away to others over all the time, trying to be pleasers, trying to fit into systems and whatnot. And I think most of the people watching this understand they've already moved beyond that. I did a piece recently for the patrons talking about what it means to be a black sheep you know, what that means on a lot of levels. And a lot of people relate to that because they've had to go against the grain. And now if we take what you were just saying and we start training this into children and grandchildren, helping them understand their the value of their own perceptions, even at a very young age. You know, you're an educator, your degree and PhD is in the philosophy of education. So Let's start there and then we'll move toward millennials because they're a really unique group. A lot of people say the millennials ended up entitled and spoiled because their parents said, oh, you can do anything. It's all in your head. And then they found out that there's actually uh, resistance in life, competition in life, and we give up too easily in a lot of cases. So let's move from little kids. Say you've got a little three or four-year-old on your hands and you see all that light in your, their eyes and you don't want to snuff it out and stick them into institutions and shoehorn them into ideas that are yours or someone else's that don't work for them. How do we get them to become sovereign from even that age? Well, I would, I would start with the advice I've given to people when I've done college counseling. Uh, and now I don't even necessarily counsel people to go to college because college is another institution, oftentimes yeah. a very expensive one that doesn't actually get to your unique talents, your, what I call divine genius. So in there, I said, listen, there's never been a better time to be who you are. Usually there was a trade-off. I'm talking about the economy of spirituality, economy of desire and, and morality. The, the trade-off was this. You could sell out and have a secure, guaranteed, you know, maybe corporate life where you're kind of spending part of it in a cubicle, but you got, you know, benefits, you got retirement, and so forth and so on. That promise has been utterly decimated and broken. So you sell out now, you don't even <laughs> you get hired by that firm, and they fire you and then ship your job overseas. That's what you get for selling out now. So... Uh, the tables have kind of turned on that. Uh, If you have a unique desire or passion and you see a need in society and you develop your learning, whether it's in college or out of college, around that and meeting that and developing that unique thing that you have to offer now, you're actually in a better economic position. You're more mobile. You can go ahead and, um, you know, look at a company, you know, if if, if your passion is around... uh, 
uh, streamlining, you know, some people are great organizers and literally hire themselves out to come and organize a house and they enjoy it, right? It's a real skill. It really saves another person a lot of energy. It draws upon a person's passion, if you will. That's not very spiritual. There are obviously more spiritual examples of that. And I see that with young kids. If we pay attention just to kids playing in a, a sandbox, we will notice from that there are certain things that just leap out at us that they're just preternaturally good at. Now, if you believe in reincarnation, you believe in continuous lives, there's an easy explanation for that, right? They brought forward, you know, that knowledge. It's still in their biofield. It's still in the aura. It's still in their capacity to draw upon it. If we as adults are attentive enough and help them recognize that and help them develop that. But you, I can't tell you, I was just watching a kid the other day when we were in Meridian County. He was throwing these bean bags and he landed one right in the middle of it. And he was little and he was- Yeah, just, a little tiny guy. <laughs> that guy is going to be like a hundred mile an hour throwing major league pitcher if he wants. Yeah. It was so obvious to me. But we are so used to the institutional and industrial system, which slots people according to some kind of exterior mandate based on social engineering and no soul and no spirit at the middle of it, that we go ahead and we waste these tremendous, we even call them the human resources. They're not, they're human spirits, they're bodies. And, and this is what I would see there. I think the first step we can take as parents, teachers, citizens, is to begin to recognize these extraordinarily powerful signs of a person's deep talent or genius presented by their spirit at a very early age in this world. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, I do, and I love this. I love what you said. I agree with it. I, I preach that same gospel myself, which is when you're watching these little people, if you're paying attention, if that parent were paying attention, they would, they would notice these kinds of skills rising to the surface. And a lot of parents do. A lot of people are helicopter parents. That doesn't mean you go exploit it and put them in kindergarten, you know, um, it, it, what do you call it? T-ball immediately. Maybe they're not ready for that yet, but to just foster it and encourage it in the spirit of fun, even. So I think every person has to ultimately, ultimately desires to find and develop this excellence in themselves. And it really doesn't even matter what that form of excellence is. It's the knowing and participation in the development of this unique thing you bring into the planet. And I agree with you. I've always seen the perfect society in the future as based on a very diverse community in which every talent has had a chance to rise organically to the top of that person's spirit. So you have someone that makes little aprons and dresses in a little shop. You have some man that knows how to do electrical engineering to really make things just work, you know. You have someone that knows how to mill, someone who knows how to bake, you know. You have someone that's good with money and finance, accountants and bankers, because that is in every one of us to have some kind of unique skill, but it keeps being funneled into this institutionalized way of thinking. And, and we've talked about this in other interviews about the patriarchy. And I agree with you by recognizing that unique genius, even in the tiniest of children and encouraging it so they can feel good about themselves from an early age about something in themselves, I think is absolutely critical. So now let's move on to what happened to 
the millennials who were the parents had a little more wealth than the generation before and yeah. give them all kinds of lessons and say, you can do it. If you can imagine it, you can do it. And what's happened to them? Because I know part of it happened to them as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I wanted to pick up on this and it ties in with, with your question, but notice how we've been propagandized to believe that the high and the spiritual and the moral is dreary. It's no fun at all. I wanted to pick up on that fun term. When you're really in tune with your spirit, it, there's nothing more joyous than to, to, to enact it in whatever form, you know? And it, it, you know, it almost naturally comes with due regard to other people, okay? You're not going to enact it in a way to punish or damage somebody else. It doesn't go with the nature of that passion and that fun and that sense of excitement and enthusiasm, which means basically to be in to be engodded or to be enthusiasm basically means to be inspirited, inspired, uh, to, to be able to hurt other people. But we've been propagandized to believe that to, to, to be spiritual, you have to be Mother Teresa, you have to be an ascetic, that you have to be dreary, that you have to be no fun, largely isolated. And um, so, of course, that's not going to sell very well, and especially in the current millennial generation. They've been sold a notion of morality, which is uh, one that it's defunct. It doesn't matter anymore, that it was simply just a superstition, right? And, and so they've gotten, and, and, and they've also been sold on individualism. So it's basically all about individual preferences and choices. You can go online, you can do anything you want. So they're out like, a, like our dog Ernie. Now they're given all these choices and given all these promises that they can be anything they want, and they even have parenting, the helicopter parenting that says you can be anything you want, but they've never been learned to see and explore themselves. What is the essence of the one choosing? What is the essence of the one wondering and being curious and exploring and going out into the world? Where are they getting information and feedback and mirroring and community discussion on that? They're not getting it anywhere. Because everyone's looking at them as another object in their own play, in their own fantasy, in their own consumeristic umbrella. And no one is saying, what are you about? I deeply want to know what's in your heart, your desires, and how we can help each other explore that, bring that forth, and help the world, and help each other, and do the thing we're here to do. Where's that happening? It's not happening in church. It's true. How often in conversations with our friends and our family are we asking that question of each other? What is it you haven't done yet? What's that thing screaming out and you'd still like to do? And oddly, I mean, I do ask that with uh, people a lot of times. And the, to me, the sad part is adults oftentimes having been so weighted down by life say, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what I want anymore. You know when you're a little kid. You kind of still even know when you're a teenager, but by the time you hit uh, the responsible elements of adulthood, you don't even remember anymore. And this is one of the things in my workshops, as you're well aware, and some of the people watching this who've attended know, I do this uh, one meditation early on that really drills down into revealing to a person the things that they knew they were and they loved and loved doing and wanted to do when they were little that got snuffed out of their lives. So we have to find a way, it seems to me, to reconnect with that. And that's where that sparks of desire that I talk about comes up. And if you want, you can elaborate on that a bit. I will. I will and I want to say here, you, you see how we have been taught to deny that. 
in every way, shape, and form, and how that inherently creates jadedness. Because if you are taught to reject the very gift that you are spiritually and have to offer the world, what is there left? To, what purpose really is there left in life? Why not off yourself? I mean, that's a serious question to all our institutions out there. You know, whereas when if you can go to these sparks of desire, if you can honor those things that are much more evident in childhood, where the, where the thin, the skin is thinner in terms of the spirit radiating through that young, I mean, that innocence, people is almost palpable. People love to be around kids. They love watching laughing baby videos. Why? Because they can just feel that radiating out and it just makes them feel good. What's wrong with feeling good? See, now our religions have taught us if you're feeling good, there's something wrong with you. You know, there's absolutely something wrong with you. you well, know, you're hedonistic or something. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you know the, the righteous and upright and erect and rigid, of course, is always feels crappy. If it feels crappy, then it's good. If it feels good, then it's bad. Now, on a one level, that works. I mean, if you're taking drugs or you're just engaging in mindless material pleasures, not that there aren't there places for that, too. Um, you know, where you just say, listen, I'm going to entertain myself by binging, uh, watching some series on Netflix or something. But, you know, just in the main, you know, we've been taught that to engage ourselves at this level is somehow, especially if we get joy out of it, it there's something wrong with us and wrong with it. Well, there is from an institutional level. It makes you less controllable, enthusiasm, authenticity. It makes you more independent-minded, more critically-minded, more creatively engaged. You're not going to fit into a little slot to make somebody else profit. It has all these problems for the system, but it has a lot of benefits for you as a person, and it has a lot of benefits for the village, for the community. You know, doing time trading and just beginning to get together. You've done, you know, interviews on this, time banking, where, where people are actually just exchanging their talents. Yeah, one I love one it. Hour. Yeah. You know, that's a perfect, simple example of us saying, the heck with this system, which accords different rates and values to different things and slots us into things. We are just going to say no to that. And we're just going to share our time together. I love that because it does, it is equal. And I'm not saying equal in terms of, you know, a socialistic viewpoint. It's that the spirit is equal. An attorney that has these wonderful skill sets and strategy and working through the law and a woman that knows how to make a perfect cherry pie have equal spirituality that they're bringing to the task. And that's how time banking works. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they set it up in some, um, neighborhoods in New York City, where you're talking about maybe just one square block, which has a lot of people in it. And I think um, the big program was initially in Madison, Wisconsin. And I, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of this in terms of the economy of spirit, as I call it, of giving birth to a new way of being, because that then becomes your reality. Once you start unplugging from those outside institutional ways and start creating this little matrix of sharing, sharing talents and skill sets with your neighbors uh, and your friends, life is just so much richer, so much more. Exactly. I love the term that you place there, the equality of spirit. That is so subversive. Remember how value, including even moral value, has been given a hierarchical ranking, right? Right. And that's not to say there aren't lower mind ways of coming at the world or higher mind ways coming at the world, but it's not based on a hierarchy of ranked and filing and competition and slotting people. 
It's based on higher and lower quality, higher and lower effect, higher and lower attention. These are all energetic terms. Yeah. They're not about, you know, whether or not you, you made it into the, you know, cherished reserve table as we were <laughs> in that talk, you know, <laughs> the front of the, you know, the, the speakers at the room, you know, with the speakers, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> these, are, these, these are all uh, poor substitutes, poor worldly substitutes for something that is everybody's birthright. Why settle is the question. And one of the big things that I say in my book, the, the Spiritually Confident Man, and it's, and, it, and, it, and it's true for everyone, I think, is rebellion is so important. Rebel against those rankings. Time banking is a way to rebel against the way we rank people's worth according to their salary, you know, and according to their prestige of their profession. You know, one of the most, the funniest things that I got, I can't remember which book it was in the Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy, actually turned into four books, I think, with So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. But there, <laughs> in this book, they devised this great scheme that they were going to have these, I think it was three big spaceships and contrive an emergency so that everybody would have to go off. And then they put, you know, all the nice, you know, rocket scientists and so forth and all the really necessary parts in the first two ships. And then they put all what they call the cosmetologists and telephone sanitizers. I didn't even know there was such a thing, right? <laughs> they put the telephone sanitizers and, and cosmetologists and everyone they thought was like a drag on society in the last <laughs> ship. They sent that ship off and then they let the other ships come back so they got rid of a third of their supposedly bad population or their, their, you know, the laggards or whatever. Turns out the rest of them all died from an epidemic from unsanitized farms. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a perfect demonstration. But it's very true. And yeah. so as we, as we move along, um, you know, in the conversation about this honoring our own desire, divine genius, and ability to contribute directly to society, um, that takes us back to a kind of an old um, axiom, a new age axiom of follow your bliss. And now there's one, there's this, this young girl, you know, I just think she's adorable. She's just a sweet girl named Andalyn who makes pies, makes the prettiest little pies. And she goes to all these farmers markets and that's what she does. She's been baking pies since she was 10. She's passionate. She told me she has 30 different flavors. And I just love that she's out there with her cute little stand and her little table with all of her pies living her bliss at the same time. She works her butt off. She's up early in the morning, the night before, baking, baking, baking. So let's talk about the notion of following your bliss and following this thing you love, but in an adult mature way, not just not the the difference between that and the new age way that was really not handled very well by a generation of people, I would say. Right. And that was part of the ways we got propagandized. And also it was a reaction to this whole dreary morality thing, right? There was a notion that if you wanted to be good, if you wanted to contribute to society, you gotta put your nose to the grindstone, do what's told to you, and just grind through. You know, be the man that works two jobs, doesn't spend time with his family, and just grinds through to get the family ahead. Now, it's important to be able to sacrifice for others, but not at the expense of, of sacrificing your own dignity and humanity, and your close intimate relationships and time with your family. So, you know, and oftentimes these people were doing not for survival, especially in the United States, but in order to quote unquote, get up, 
in life, right? And that was considered achievement and advancement, you know? So now we're, you know, now we're at a state where the kind of the mask has been taken off on that. Even if you want to go that route, it's not really available to millennials for the, for instance. So now what route are we going to go to? You know, now this notion of following your bliss is making a lot of sense on a lot of levels. Before I told you, even following your bliss now even starting to make economic sense because now you have an actual skill that's portable that you're passionate about. But what I love about your example about Andalyn is when she's doing that work, and a lot of people say this, when they're doing their passion, they say, it's a lot of work, it's sweat. I was up 20 hours, but I loved it. My sister who runs a vegan restaurant in Columbus, uh, Ohio called Porsche's Cafe, she, I, she regularly puts in 80, 90 hours a week, but she also loves what she does. And so it's, not, it's the, the notion of work is beginning to change. And she's bringing community members are having talks, health talks there. She does, you know, Argentine tango, just like you do, Regina. You know, she's done that in her restaurant. So here's what happens when we begin to follow our passion and bliss. It becomes infectious. And, and it starts attracting community members. And we start developing relationships of spirit in which people are giving to each other and sharing to each other. And the whole, the boat is rising, the tide is rising as a result of all this giving and drawing that spirit in. Because remember, spirit is infinite. You know, we can draw as much as we can. There's no, there's, there's no, they say there's too much of a good thing. When it comes to spirit, there's not too much of a good thing. <laughs> it, it, the more spirit you have, the better. There is no limit and there is no, like, no bell curve. There's nothing. The more spirit you have, the better. Now let's take it back where we started the conversation. And that is, you have some young fellows who are probably middle class, upper middle class, even in San Francisco, notoriously liberal. I think Danny Sheehan was saying in Marin County and San Francisco as well, a Democrat's going to be elected even if they wheel them in, in a coffin. So this is a liberal area. They're feeling distraught over what's happened with the political scene and I mean, the insanity of the political scene, and they feel there's no hope. Now, after everything we've just said, if any one of those young guys had ended up in front of you, what would you have told them so that if any parents are dealing with millennials who are just feeling lost, it gives them a starting place? You know, I had that problem with one of the people in your, um, Dave, you know, one of the people in your workshop had this issue with his son, having not a lot of purpose in his life. And um, I said, Dave, well, tell me a little bit about him. And he told me about him. And then, then he struck upon this thing that he was working with, uh, with uh, being kind of a manager or helping out in volunteer capacity with a wheelchair basketball team. And he loves basketball, you know? And I said, that's brilliant. Engage him on that level. Let him develop in that direction. Find something tangible that someone's passionate about that serves their deeper calling in spirit and serves others and, and, and gives them a unique skill set and a passion. And I said, really develop that. Allow them to get involved in the management-oriented aspect of that. You know, allow them to tell the stories of those basketball players, <laughs> you know, be part of a larger narrative, be part of this larger community, and allow him to begin to feel himself authentically in those kinds of actual concrete activities. 
concrete activities by themselves are not going to make you spiritual. Just like ascension and meditation and mindfulness are not going to bring purpose into your life per se. They can clear your mind. They can get rid of some of the gunk. Okay. But concrete activities that are linked up with the spiritual uh, or passionate impulses that you have or desires and drives that you have will be infused and will lead in interesting and good and productive directions. So that's sort of how I would say to these parents, if you notice a lot of these people that were shooting up these schools did not have these kind of relationships with their parents. And oftentimes they were shunned in schools. People would stereotype them as dirt bags and whatever. They became closed, more and more closed down. And once they become completely closed down, they had nothing to lose. And they wanted everyone to feel their pain. So they took out a gun and started shooting people. That's how dramatic it can get. Most people aren't that bad, but they can take out a gun and shoot themselves. They can commit suicide. And there is, you can talk morality till you're blue in the face. You can talk that there's always hope, you know. But if you think in today's world, in particular with millennials, that this rise and fall, I, I did well on a test, but didn't do well on a test, is somehow going to be enough for them to think that they have a real purpose in life, then you're fooling yourselves. The thing that's going to help them feel purpose is to be engaged in a passionate activity, deeply rooted in their own dharma and sense of spirit and helping others and enhancing and developing their own souls and spirits and selves while helping others. And that there is one in everyone. I have never seen an exception to this. I have counseled people on college. I have helped them prepare for tests. And uh, I've worked with non-conventional learners. And even though it's been an institutional environment, I have always approached it from the way they think and, and their interest. They have to do an essay for a college or an essay for a class. I said, what do you care about? What are you curious about? <laughs> Concentrate on that. And then we can show them that all the skills the school wants you to demonstrate around that central core. You do the same with your, with your um, workshops. You say, and you lead people on these wonderful meditations, regressions, and meditations in which a person begins to part the curtains, fluff, you know, put aside all the insecurities, and gain uh, trust and confidence in who they are at the core. Once you are there, I, your, your, your tendency to want to commit suicide and you start to express it in the world, you have an actual live purpose, not an abstract purpose, not everyone telling you you've got all this opportunity that never ends up coming. You're actually doing it now and it's working and it can be humble. You know, when I'm working with my clients, it's humble. I'm not, you know, the world's famous counselor or, or guru by any means. And I don't really want to be, I, you know, but what I am doing is I can feel the energetic change in them through the relationship I have with them. And it's not me as an expert doing it. It's me as a companion, a spiritual companion and advocate with some skill sets of my own and my own dharma and passion that are helping make that happen. And you know me. Whenever I get done with one of those sessions, I'm a much different person. <laughs> yeah, because, and our relationship's better. <laughs> Everything's better. <laughs> That's, your dharma. That's what you're passionate about. Yes. Yes. I want to see people blossom. Yeah. And not just in a, in, in, in a token way or in a, in a sort of 
footsie way, yeah. but in a way that really brings forward their, their divine genius, in a way that really bring, brings these forward. And that can be in small ways. Andalin's pies, are they, they look small, but they're not. From a spiritual level, they're huge. Any expression of passion is huge. It's world-beating. It's better than being dictator of the world. <laughs> so, I mean, my attention and where I put my energy is in those things in life, those seemingly small gifts that are out there around us all the time. So we need to support that, not just in ourselves, but in each other. We need to know, even if someone we were talking to seems like they got a wacky idea, if they absolutely love it, then just to join in conversation and supportive conversation about that thing they want to do, even if it never happens, even the conversation is a link into the the passion you're talking about. So I think yeah. what you said has been very help, helpful. And I hope for anyone who has young people in their life, little kids and, and millennial kids even who are struggling, that this has been a helpful conversation. So on that note, Zeus, thank you. I will see you in a few minutes, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Regina. <laughs> and for anybody else wanting to um, connect with Zeus, you can go to askdrzeus.com. Until next time, thank you so much for joining us here on reginameredith.com. <laughs>